this Friday. Your favorite emotions are back on the big screen in Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2. It's time to greet your Team Riley. It's anger. Let me at him. Fear. Safety checklist is complete. Disgust. Ew, ew. Ugh. Sadness is in the house. Oh, no. Hello, I'm anxiety. I'm one of Riley's new emotions. Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2. There's a part two? We're going. Ready PG. Parental guidance suggested. Only theaters Friday. Get tickets now. It's time for Tales of Terror, only on the Mutual Audio Network. The following audio drama is rated PG-13, suggesting that all children under the age of 13 should listen accompanied with an adult. You're listening to Audio Theater in a Darker Shade. This is DarkerProject.com. And now, our feature presentation. The following audio is explicit in nature and may contain adult themes, light sexual situations, violent content, or strong language. We're in a time when the end of the world was just the beginning of a nightmare. When the worst of us set the world to burn while the best of us cower in terror. Tonight's presentation, Madness. Episode 5, A New Sheriff in Town. Written by Andrew T.J. Rowe. Previously on Madness. Downtown is exactly where I'm going. What? Why? I need to check up on my shop. Make sure it's still standing. Who cares? I need to find my wife and daughter, Chris. Then you do that, Jared. We need to stay together. We we need to make sure... You got Melissa and Ellie, and I got my shop. That's exactly where I'm going. And you're welcome to tag along if you want to. No. (laughs) Are you pointing that shotgun at my back, Jared? We're going to find Melissa and Ellie. Well, I'll be damned. You kill one little girl and suddenly you've got a big brass pair. I didn't think you had it in you. (gasps) You think any farmer in Kansas doesn't have a gun in his house? I mean, it's no shotgun. I think a 38 would be enough to bring you down, Jared. Jared, I, I know you don't want to shoot me. I really wish I could say the same, but uh, the truth is, I just don't care. They were like Steve, I guess, suddenly made bloodthirsty in the night. I thought for sure they were going to kill her, but they didn't. She laughed like Kevin had laughed as two of them hefted her up and carried her away like a prized buck to 
do any number of terrible things they might have had in mind. As they disappeared from view around the corner of the shop, I dimly thought it would probably have been better for her if they'd killed her on the spot. Then I remembered. I didn't give a shit. I downed the rest of the glass and looked at an oversized cardboard cutout of Captain Morgan standing proudly with his foot atop a wooden barrel. Well, Captain, what the fuck do I do now? Did you find your wife and kid? No. No, they aren't here. Your car's gone. They must have gone somewhere else. Yeah, I think we should do the same. They probably heard the gunshot. Train station's still all boarded up, right? Yeah. Good a place as any to hold up. Lead the way. We walked away from my house, my home, where Melissa had nursed our baby and killed her mother, whose corpse was probably serving as a meal for Mr. Iverland. I couldn't help but feel like I was walking away from my entire life, like I'd never find another place to call home. Melissa. Ellie. Where are you? The train depot was dark. All of its windows boarded over to keep vandals and squatters away from the construction equipment that now inhabited it. High, vaulted ceilings, caked in decades of cobwebs and dust, hinted at days when passengers would embark on passenger cars to Denver or Kansas City. Now, the once grand station had been gutted and played host only to heavy road construction equipment that smelled of stale oil and grease. Close the door and hit the lights. Chris slinked off like a commando in a war movie, armed with his 38, a ridiculously small weapon as opposed to an M16 or AK-47. He swung around a corner of a huge, boxy vehicle that I recognized as the monstrosity that laid down asphalt every few years when the city council penciled it into the budget. It was almost laughable watching him make rounds through the glorified garage, like an overgrown kid playing a lone special forces soldier on a pretend mission. Then again, hadn't I looked something like that when I'd passed by the station not twenty minutes ago? All clear. Any ideas on what we should do now? No. Well, we'd better think of something. Staying here isn't exactly a long-term plan. Did you see anyone else downtown? No one I wanted to get to know better. Any idea where Melissa might have taken the kid? Ellie. Her name is Ellie. Okay. Not that you care. Why should you? You didn't care about Ronnie enough to learn his name. Take it easy, Jared. You didn't care about Kevin or Steve either. But you cared about your truck, huh? Your truck and your fucking grill. Calm the hell down before somebody hears you. Or what? You gonna shoot me? Go ahead. You didn't think twice about anyone else you killed. You're right. I didn't. Did you? What? What are you talking about? The girl. Farmer John's girl. I haven't seen you shed any tears for her. He was right. I hadn't taken a single moment to think about the little girl as anything more than a monster. But it was easy to think of her that way. Because, in my mind, that's all she ever was. 
I never knew the child that probably rode the bus to school every morning and went to bed in a white nightgown every night. Maybe once my adrenaline had ebbed, once my mind had stopped racing, maybe I could have seen her in that light. Maybe I could have grieved for her. Steve was my friend once, so it was hard to think of him as a monster. But he was. I knew that. He wanted me dead, and Chris had saved me. Kevin wasn't a monster, but he might have gotten us killed if Chris hadn't silenced him. The redneck had started shooting first, and the kid on the four-wheeler had tried to run us off the road, and Ronnie, well, who the hell was Ronnie anyways? Chris had saved my life more times than I cared to count, all in the span of twelve hours, and then the question spilled out, no sooner than I had thought it. Why did you come back? What? You say you don't care, and... And I believe that. But why did you come looking for me out there? Well, my shop was trashed. What else was I going to do? Is that all? Yeah. Then why wait for me to wake up at the farmhouse? You could have taken off any time. I was having breakfast. Why do you keep saving me? Hell, why did you save me the first time from Steve? Ah, hell, Jared, I don't know. The airfield. Okay, what about it? You asked where Melissa would take Ellie. The airfield is out of town and surrounded with razor wire. Ah, that's not bad. Even if they aren't there, it's a better place to hold up than this place. Except that it's north of town, and we have no way to get the car through that barricade, or back up to the highway with that truck jackknifed. Can we go back to the lake and take the back roads around? Well, we could but the only way I know would be up through Wichita and back down. Big city, lots of people. Yeah, I guess that's out. We go up to the north side of Soffer and find another car. I can probably hotwire something made before the 90s. Go through town with those psychos out there? Are you... Crazy, right? Ha ha. But we can go down to the ball field and cut across the fields east of town. Chance Baker has a used car lot up there. You know... Take a chance, buy from chance. Shitty slogan. But he has all kinds of old cars. I don't know. You're right. It's too risky. Let's hear your plan. <sighs> Fine. I wasn't sure that I could trust Chris completely, but I could feel that something had shifted between us. He had made it obvious that he would leave me behind or kill me if necessary, but at the same time, he seemed almost eager to get both of us out of Sofa and someplace safe. Maybe he was just looking out for himself, but something made me think that the old Chris was still in there. On some level, maybe even some subconscious level, he wanted to help me. He wanted to help find my wife and daughter. I was thinking clearly now, more clearly than I ever had before, shedding all that emotion and societal pretense that had built up around my thoughts gave me clarity. It took some time, sure. When a piece of yourself gets stripped away like that, something that you had always imagined was integral to the essential you, it takes time to put the pieces back together. 
about 12 hours to be exact. And then you realize how horribly polluted that essential you had really been. All of that, I want to be a good person, and how would I feel if that happened to me is like sewage that floats in to muddy the waters of the human psyche. When you strip it away, you realize what we are in our natural state. I thought it was greed at first. My expensive grill, my macho pickup, my gun, my shop, my money. But finally, I came to know that those things were just tools. They were weapons in an arsenal that I brandished at the world to prove to them that I had power. But we can't all be kings because royalty requires peasantry. A true king must tame his kingdom and bring the weak under his reign. A king must have warriors, brutish and bloodthirsty, like Steve. He must have jesters and fools, like Kevin. And most importantly, a king must have servants, like Jared. God himself had reset the world like a giant chessboard, and each destined ruler had been given a Steve, a Kevin, and a Jared as their pieces. I hadn't learned the rules of the game, and I had sacrificed my pieces too early. But it didn't matter. I still had my Jared. But Jared wouldn't be content to play the pawn. He'd spent too much time believing he was somehow equal to his future rulers. But he would serve me nonetheless. And if that meant letting him believe that the power had shifted in his favor, then so be it. Because soon an opponent would come. Soon the game would begin. Are we ready? Whenever you are. It looks clear. Come on. Jared had his guard up, attentive to every sound around us, seeming to scan all directions at once with the sights of a shotgun, upon playing as a knight. I kept my gun raised as we walked, feigning caution, but I wasn't concerned. Any attack would come to Jared first, alerting me of the danger. That was a rule of the game that I now understood. Ronnie was the piece that had proved that. When the redneck had come to challenge me as a player, it was Ronnie that moved out to set the ambush. And when we came to the farmhouse, it was Ronnie that moved in first, a sacrifice for his king. I had been hurt when I tried to move in before Jared, not knowing that Ronnie was already off the board. I had broken the most sacred rule of the game. The king never moves first. Shit! Get down! One by one, bank by bank. The floodlights of the ball field snapped on, and even before the gunfire began, I knew what was happening. Someone's endgame had already begun, and I was meant to challenge the victor. We have to get back to the station. Come on! We need to see what we're up against, Jared. I have an idea. No! We have to go! Now! Fine. Go back to the depot. I'll take a look and tell you what I find out. Wait! Chris! But I was already running into the ditch opposite of the ball fields and over the small fence that surrounded the Software City Works road material stock. Mounds of gravel and dirt shielded me from the view of the ball fields, and I climbed the side of a mammoth sand dune, sinking and sliding into the loose grains, at last reaching the top where I fell to my belly to watch the closing moves taking place across the street. The battle was nearly over I watched a dozen men, outfitted in riot gear and wielding assault rifles, mopping up the last of the savage who had come to bed down for the night. I realized that Jared was climbing the dune behind me, and he came to lay at my side, shotgun in front of him like a sniper's rifle. I smiled a little. He was playing the game just as he was meant to. 
not leaving his king unguarded. I marveled at the strength of my opponent's pieces with unadulterated envy, knowing that to claim victory over him, I would have to play smart and slow, build my forces to even the odds. But where was he? His knights had cleared the board, but where was their king? I knew him when I saw him, climbing atop the dugout with a microphone in hand, dressed in an orange jumpsuit that I was certain would read Soffer County Department of Corrections on the back. He looked like a god with a massive, muscular physique, adorned with canvases of tattoos on his neck and forearms. Children, hearken unto me. The beast has risen and called his army forth from the fires of hell. But we shall not bow to the will of the demons. We will cleanse this world and usher in a new paradise where we shall all be free. Kneel now, children, and pledge your lives, your souls to me, for I am your Messiah. I watched those men who had survived the onslaught of the ball fields take to their knees and raise their guns high, warriors pledging their swords and fealty to their king. This, I knew, was a worthy rival, and I silently pledged to myself that his army would be mine. Fear not, my children. Your savior has arrived. You have been listening to Darker Project's production of Madness, Episode 5, A New Sheriff in Town, written by Andrew T.J. Rowe. Featured in this episode were Persephone Rose as Jared Carvey, Shane Harris as Chris Larson, Dave Morgan as the Savior, and yours truly as the announcer. Madness is written and created by Andrew T.J. Rowe and was produced by M.J. Cogburn. The musical score was performed by Celestial Aeon Project. The executive producer of Darker Projects is M.J. Cogburn. This has been a Darker Projects production. Visit us on the web at www.darkerprojects.com. This is Mark Brzee. Thanks for listening. Hi, my name is Tracy Babian, co-author of the Carlson Chronicles podcast. My husband... J.A. Babian, the main author, had a triple stroke in the latter part of August of this year. Jerry was lifelighted to Tulsa, Oklahoma, with a brain bleed that the doctors thought they were going to have to do surgery on him, which surely would have killed him. Thank the Lord they didn't. He survived that brain bleed and swelling, but he is in need of so much for his recovery. I have started a GoFundMe to help with all the costs that I just don't have. I retired back in April of this year so that I could take care of Jerry as he was starting to show signs then that I just didn't catch. Little did I know this would be a blessing in disguise. He is fighting this setback of memory loss and 75% use of his right leg, arm, along with his cognitive speech. Considering the doctor said he would not make it, I consider him to be a miracle. Medicare has only granted 12 visits of physical and speech therapy twice a week. 
he needs at least six months worth of speech therapy alone. That is a total of $4,000 we need to pay up front that I just don't have. So far, we have had $775 in donations of the 10000 we need come in. Please donate today so that he can get his needed medication, therapy, and also help pay bills that Medicare just will not cover, even if it's only $5. I update this account so folks can see his progress. You can go to my Facebook account, Tracy Babian VO, to find the pinned link with the title Jerry Babian Stroke Victim Needs. Jerry says, thank you. I still have a lot to write on my stories that I want to get done. Please help me to achieve that goal. Thank you in advance for your donation. Tracy Babian